Welcome back to the Data Driven Real Estate Podcast, the podcast for real estate professionals dedicated to driving business using data. I'm Aaron Norris, along with Sean O'Toole of Property Radar, and this is episode 37. Today, we have Sean Walker. Uh, this week, we cover a lot of different topics from tax liens to land banking to small villages of tiny homes. Uh, Sean has been in the industry for over 20 years and has used data in very creative ways to make deals happen at all different times of the market, often very contrarian. You won't want to miss this week. Welcome back to the Data Driven Real Estate Podcast. Today, we are very fortunate to have Sean Walker. Sean, thank you for joining us on the program. Thanks, Aaron. What uh, keeps you really excited about real estate in 2021? Well, you know, I you see a lot of different economists out there, especially ones that are in the real estate industry, whether they're um, with the National Association of Realtors that that paint a sunny picture no matter what the market's doing. Um, and there's a lot of different data out there to track. But quite frankly, I, I think we have another tsunami coming. I don't think we can avoid it at this point. Uh, I don't think a lot of those small businesses are coming back for people to, once they come out of forbearance, uh, the investors and the secondary market are going to say foreclose. They won't have a choice financially. They can't keep stringing it out forever. So I think there's a lot of opportunities and I know a lot of the big hedge funds, um, the invitation homes out there, they're saving up uh, their dry powder to hit the market. I mean, I think for the individual investor, it's time to really get your ducks in a row, gather your financial resources um, and start um, building capital, whether that's private investor partners or whatever resources you have available and, and make sure you have good, clean data going into this next wave. So you're, you are ahead of the pack on that hunt, if that makes sense. All right. I, I want to back up just a, a, a tad. Um, I uh, flew out to your, to your offices in um, Utah, and I was on uh, Andrew Cordell's Money Is Show, which yes. is in the, the same building. And, um, you know, and I uh, was really uh, impressed by all the different things uh, your company has going on. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, I, there's clearly an education component. You're, you know, a prolific, uh, a podcaster and, uh, or I guess really webinar host, uh, maybe it's a better way to put that. Um, and then just lots of interesting projects from tiny home developments to all kinds of stuff. And then you have this incredible background of, tax sale liens and um, single family home and uh, land development deals and the rest. Um, just walk us through what you're, what you're doing today. And, uh, you know, Aaron does provide a background, but I want to just talk about it a little bit. Oh yeah. No, thanks. We, you know, um, my, my background, I kind of fell into real estate investing. I was uh, started a little mortgage company with a good friend of mine. We quit our corporate jobs in, in 98. Um, and we just started a little mortgage company. We just figured it out. And that's back before they had the current licensing requirements that they have now. So uh, it's pretty easy to get involved back then. But we were professionals. We learned the trade and the craft and, and built up that client base. And in the client base, we, we started noticing that there are people that would just get in trouble. Um, people that would, uh, you know, lose their jobs or there'd be divorce. Um, there'd be people that would need to get relocated uh, for their job. And we were just referring all that business out to our realtor friends. 
saying, oh, here's a few realtors that may help you liquidate your property and help you relocate to your new market. And about you know three or four years into the business, that had been our standard practice. But one of our clients um, who had been divorced uh, had said, you know what, I, I've met with your realtor friend that you sent over. She called back a few days later and he wants me to do all this fix up. I'm a single mom with three kids under 10. I'm getting remarried. I can't do it. And, and, and she goes, why don't you and your partner just buy my house and make a nice little rental? And she started telling us how much we could make with the rental, right? She's <laughs> like, I've, yeah, there's a lot of nice rentals in this area. It's very clean. The house isn't very trashed. I mean, the kids have been hard on the paint. The carpet's got to go. Let, but let I'll just give it to, to make you. Money off me. <laughs> yeah, and she, well, she she didn't want to go into the new marriage with any debt or an obligation of a payment with her new husband, which I thought was admirable, you know. So she wasn't looking for a sugar daddy per se. Um, but she goes, well, I'll just give it to you for what I owe on it. And so I was kind of patronizing, to be honest with you. I, I just said, oh, that's nice. Well, let, let us consider that. And I. I, the first time I'd ever thought about investing in real estate for myself, other than my personal property. And so I, I hung up the phone. I looked over at my partner who sat about 10 feet away from me. And I said, Hey, do you want to buy a rental property? And he goes, I don't know. Can we make any money? And I said, I don't know. But what we were good with was, was math and in our in spreadsheets. And we used to run amortization uh, schedules for our clients. And even if they prepaid it a little bit, they could pay it off early and then reinvest back into the market. And so we ran an amortization schedule with somebody else paying the rents and their labor. We thought, wow, this is great because we're not having to work 40 hours a week to pay this rent payment. This is a nice way to leverage our time because we knew with our little mortgage business that we only had so many hours in the day. And we'd already capped that out after about three or four years. We just couldn't right. work any more hours in the day to keep growing our income unless we wanted to go with more of a brokerage model. But then you've got employees and the hassle and all that fun stuff. And so this was kind of like a huge light bulb went off for us. Then we found out that we ran out of capital very, very quickly, um, you know, because you have to put a down payment. for. The, so we started flipping some houses to get capital to buy another rental. Our goal was to have 10 rentals and that would be our retirement and have some residual income in case one of us got hurt or something like that. Um, and that was it. That's, that's the whole start. And then um, in around 2005, we started looking for other passive ways to generate income. And that's when I came across tax lien certificate and there's uh, certificates and there's a huge dearth of information about there that's false. Uh, just what do you want to call it? Fake news. Uh, and it was all get rich quick gimmickry. So I bought a book um, that just gave me a list of all the counties that sold tax lien certificates. And I kind of ignored all the tips on getting rich overnight stuff. And I just started calling the counties and doing my own research. And so we started investing. We've, we've created two funds for our tax lien portfolio that have done very well over the years. How many tax um, liens have you done? Uh, roughly about 3,500. Um, wow. And that's a 30 plus million dollar portfolio that we built out. There's two separate portfolios. One that was uh, leveraged. So we worked with a bank, uh, B of I Federal out of San Diego uh, and had a credit line. Um, a $15 million credit line for that one. And then the other one was a cash and partner uh, portfolio that we built up. Wow. And, and then, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so let's just talk about that uh, <laughs> really quickly. You know, so data, right, is it's, uh, it's huge. Is an important part of that. And, uh, yep. you know, this is a data-driven real estate podcast. So I always come back to data. And, um, 
so so talk to me was it was it hard to yeah. you know find data and uh, you know to do that business it's super data intense with tax liens because what you're not um, just going out and looking at a handful of properties on a Saturday afternoon on a drive-by um, because at scale, um, when an auction's coming up, you might be bidding on three, four, 500 houses, but based on competition, you might end up getting you know 20% of what you bid on, but you still have to scrub all that data. So literally yeah. with the county, you would download an Excel spreadsheet. Some counties, you didn't even have that. Uh, it was in a newspaper or a PDF when we first started. Um, and then we'd have to convert it into, you know, try to get clean data into a spreadsheet. But the boots on the ground, I mean, this is... And this that data even, is just, hey, there's a property going yeah. to tax sale. It doesn't give you any information about the property. and that, I might just have a parcel can... ID and a truncated legal description without a property address even. Wow. So, so, no, so you even had to go do the research to find the address before you could even do, say, is this thing worth bidding on? That, that, that's exactly right. And then we'd have to sort, sift, and filter by property type. When we get the, the master bulk list from the uh, pre-auction uh, data from the county, uh, we didn't want to do anything other than single-family residential and vacant developed lots or building lots. We didn't want to do commercials outside. We didn't want to do raw land per se. We didn't want to do anything that um, we didn't really know about because if you buy a tax lien certificate, you could eventually end up with that property. And, and so just scrubbing the property types was uh, you know, a major thing as well. And it never really got that easier. Really, um, that was really eye-opening for me when I first started doing uh, some tax deals was like how many of there's like parcels where there's like uh you know off ramp and stuff and it ended up with this little piece of dirt that's like <laughs> a, a, a thousand foot fiber optic strip uh or yeah. an easement strip that nobody wants to ever buy and we made right. some mistakes i will tell you not having the right data here's a classic mistake i i can't make this story up so this this is how important getting good data is we saw 13 acres come up and the, the taxes were about $2,500 to buy the taxing certificate, what the principal amount owing was at the time, right? And so we thought, man, that's a great deal. And so we didn't really see what type of property it was. Um, and so we purchased that taxing certificate on the 13 acres. This is in central Florida. Come to find out, it, and, and even this is the early days, so don't judge me too harshly, Sean, on this, but... <laughs> We even took it to foreclosure, which was a few thousand more. And we had some builder contacts in the area and things like that. We thought, gosh, this would be a great possibly to wholesale it to them or joint venture on this 13 acres. Well, the first person that we took it to, once we got the deed, they said, uh, you know, this is on a power line strip, right? And we're like, we had maybe five, 6,000 into this so far. Um, and we're like, oh, and then we pulled up the Google map, the imagery, Oh, so we, we, it was a total goof up. And again, the whole thing is just a power line. Easement, yeah. Not completely yeah. unusable. And, and when you, re and the thing is, is with the Google overhead view, it wasn't readily available because there's a lot of trees and woods and stuff like that. It was really hard to see uh, what exactly it was unless you were local. So yeah. a couple key lessons there, do your boots on the ground. Uh, number two, make sure you have really clean data because had we had better data, we would have easily seen that. Now we got bailed out on that one. Uh, uh, I, I can't make this up. Uh, we got approached with a letter, uh, a llama farmer that had an adjoining llama farm right next to it. 
reached out to us and asked if he could lease it out on an annual basis to let his llama grace. And we said, yeah, go knock yourself out. So you and still so, own it and you're still Yeah, he pays us uh, $750 a year. So we might break even, I don't know, by the time I retire. I don't know. So, but it, it, it you know, uh, again, it's, I'm not saying that's a great scenario, but the but the data is key. If I'm I'm giving a huge plug for data here, yep. So that that's an interesting one where you know you were thinking maybe it was a little subdivision or something, and you went on to do a lot of land and subdivision yes. deals. Is this a good segue into that? Maybe. Yeah, you know we did. We at first um, in our acquisition model, we did start buying at auctions. Uh, so two different acquisitions models that we had. The One was, judicial foreclosure auctions. Yeah, and and we pri- primarily focused in Florida, Arizona, and Nevada. Okay, and so we had two focuses on our single-family residential portfolio at first, which was Arizona and uh, Las Vegas area, if you will, metropolitan statistical area. So that was our main push at first for single-family residential. And then I, and, and also the taxing certificates that we were buying in Arizona and um, in uh, Florida at first were only on SFR product. We didn't look at any building lots or anything like that, even though there's a ton of those uh, in Arizona where the last recession, the builders just went belly up. Yeah. And they left all these vacant developed lots. Some of them were entitled, some of them weren't. Some of them were stubbed in utilities, some of them weren't. And so, what I started seeing is I said, man, if the, if the building market ever, ever comes back, I can get these lots dirt cheap, like $1,500 for something that traded out in the marketplace in 2005 for 35,000. And I can get it for 1500. I can clean the title with a quiet title action for maybe another 2000 and then land bank it, or I can resell that on a seller finance deal to a retiree couple, which we did about 2,200 of those. We, we put those out and 2,200 lots you resold to people who wanted to build. Yes, but they did a payment plan with us. So they put 500 down and pay us 75 bucks a month or whatever. And they did multiple oh, wow. years. So we did a bunch of that seller finance. That's a common technique with uh, just kind of mom and pop land bankers. You, you see that quite a bit. So um, they're, they're buying a lot to build their future retirement home, but not right now, maybe in 10 years or something. That, that's right. And, and then in our Vegas, Arizona markets, especially, we were hitting the auctions, as soon as that inventory started to free up, and this was more around that 2012 mark, because a lot of stuff was locked down. If you remember Vegas, there was a judge that slapped around the bank saying, hey, you don't have the original ink. You can't <laughs> foreclose. So a lot of that stuff was stalled up in courts. And I don't know what eventually happened to all that stuff. But when the inventory started to flow, we built our portfolio in Vegas. And and I will tell you, it was a nightmare because we we were doing a lot of short sale offers, of course. But with the auctions, you would hear about stuff coming available for auction. And we literally had drivers. If I would have had better data, again, another big plug for data here, it would have saved us so much time and expense because our drivers would drive throughout the night. And some of these weren't the greatest neighborhoods either. Okay. Yeah, you know, Property Radar was in uh, Vegas uh, when you were there, but you were an East Coast guy. And uh, yeah, we, were we a didn't, West Coast company. Didn't, and you never, never saw it. I, I think it I, blew I your mind when I gave you a, uh, a demo of what you could have yeah. had that whole time in Vegas. Uh, it would have put a lot more money into our bottom line because there's a lot of those properties we wouldn't have chased in the first place, or even attempted to bid on. And so it, it you know, it, it was, it was like the Three Stooges running around, and then our guys would. 
you know, go out and they'd be driving, driving, driving all over Vegas on these properties that were coming up to auction. And sometimes that data would come in last minute and sometimes it was wrong. Meaning they would get the properties confused based on a drive-by. It was dark when they drove by. And, and, and you know, we were, we were scrambling against other investors and other big investors that were, you know, yeah. Wall Street was starting to take notice, right, of this marketplace, of the SFR marketplace. So I remember uh, specifically, we, we had one property that ended up being um, not in the right neighborhoods, okay, uh, for sure. And it was completely overtaken by the homeless. And there was a bunch of chickens in the back. We ended up buying this property. And so as a joke, and everybody blamed me, it was, I was really the end call to say bid and here's the top bid on some of this yeah. stuff, on a big chunk of it anyway. And so we were, we were down in Vegas doing boots on the ground just because we go down almost once a month. And some of the guys were getting me back and so they took one of the chickens from the backyard and put it in my hotel room in a box. So when I came, and so that was revenge for not having good data. <laughs> we bought a property. Now we just kept it as a rental forever. In real estate, time heals all wounds, it feels like. And so we I sold it uh, in about late 2017. But it, you bought a lot of building lots, maybe even entire subdivisions in Florida too, right? Well, yeah. The, most of the time we did it in what's called a, a, a scattered lot subdivision in Florida. Florida is very unique in the fact that you have reti retirees migrating from each decade, no matter what. And so on, on, a, on a singular street, you, you'll have a house built in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, one from 10 years ago and a brand new build right next to it. So every decade, new groups coming in. and Yep. And, okay. and I'd hate to be an appraiser. I've, I've mentioned that before in, in the state of Florida. It's interesting, uh, though, Aaron, because. You're muted. Um, no, I was, I'm laughing. You As you drive down the streets, too, you can yeah. tell the decade because of builder code, um, the elevation of the house. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Because uh, they, they have some to Some houses elevate. are down here and some mm -hmm. are up here. Right next door, you could have a four-foot difference. I'm not kidding. It's so. That, that's, that's right. Like, oh, 1990, 2010. <laughs> that's exactly right. And, and, and it's so interesting to see that. And then um, another, another big thing for us in, in the Florida market was um, we were, I went to um, Urban Land Institute um, conference, uh, I think it was in Tampa in 2015. And they were starting to talk about boomers retirement, uh, birth years, and when they were going to start peaking. And so 2016 was the peak for a 10-year period for, for boomers retiring. And we thought, let's compile more lots because we had started a couple of years with taxing certificates, but we weren't getting a ton just from buying taxing certificates. It's a great methodology. But what we then did is we worked with some local agents, and then we started doing our, our campaigns out to out-of-state owners. So we would send out mailers and postcards. And if it was a couple in Arizona that owned a lot in Florida or a couple up in Arkansas, and if there was a singular name on the lot ownership and they lived out of state, those were the ones that we hit first because we figured the other spouse had potentially passed away. Mm. And we were getting people just selling us their lots for, for, you know, for very, very low prices because they didn't want to keep paying the property tax on those.
Well, and I want to give some history because so, you and I both know the area that you're building in in Southwest yeah. Florida, where you're getting these lots. In 1960, this these <laughs> brothers from New York came down, and this area has been made popular by Thomas Edison, actually. Edison, Firestone, and um, uh, Ford used to have their winter homes down there. Yep. And then Cape Coral is just slightly north of Fort Myers, and there's literally... They were bringing in people from New York. They put them in a plane and you would drop a sandbag and wherever <laughs> your sandbag dropped is where your lot was. And they built out this infrastructure. I don't even know how you do today. Cape Coral is a huge area. Yeah. And you've got all these canals. Some go to the Gulf. Some are fresh water. If you don't know what you're looking at, it's extremely risky. On top of that, you also have environmental problems. You've got tortoises, burrowing owls. When I first went through there, I thought a whole bunch of people had gotten murdered on the side of the road. because <laughs> You're talking about the environmentalists. So I'm not yeah. making fun of environmentalists, but they are religious, almost but, cultish, right? I mean, some, some of this data lives in public records, but you can't miss yes. on stuff like you really have to understand the nuance down there. And how did you mm. plug in? Well, again, um, you know, the data that we would do we got so desperate for good data that I had my son who was in college at the time for software engineering. Um, he, he wrote a macro to scrape the data from the county sites, from Lee County and Sarasota and a few others. Uh, some were easier to do than others. And, and so literally he'd write a macro. We get this data, but it wasn't pure. It wasn't clean. And so that was a, that was a major challenge. Um, Again, uh, we would Real do our drive-bys. Yeah, yeah we, we would spend a lot of time boots on the ground. But that, you know, again, getting the data in advance before you do that, it would have saved us 50% of our drive-by times. And I went street by street in these areas because we had investors investing with us. I felt it was my obligation to know every single area and street and take notes. And we did. Having a drive-by app, and I'm, I, I'm cheap. I'm giving you a cheap plug here, Sean. But you guys have some amazing features for that, right? On the on the drive-by stuff. And you know, it's it, it's so funny. You get new folks, and they just expect all this stuff to be right at their fingertips, and and yeah. all the rest. And they have no idea how hard this business was just five, 10, 15 years ago, not that long ago. <laughs> and like how much it's changed okay. and how much more data is available. It's crazy, Sean. I'm going to really date myself because I know we're roughly about the same age, right? Yeah. Okay. So in the late 90s, early 2000s, when we had just first started our mortgage company, I would have even used your product for mortgages back then if I had, a, I had it, just to get more details about the house, right? Because the, we were running, do they have enough room to refinance? Is there enough equity? Because I would pull public records off Microfish, okay? <laughs> I was pulling notice of defaults. I would pull... Um, anybody that had had any change in a conveyance per se, uh, or any new liens that had come on. So I'd look for somebody that maybe had just purchased their home. And then after about 12 months or so, after they had absorbed some of those initial costs, I'd hit them up for a refinance on a little marketing campaign. But I literally had to go to Microfish. I have my big notepad there. Every Friday morning from nine to 12, I would go there. And I'd see all the other schlups down there just like me trying to, it was mostly realtors trying to harvest for leads. And then yeah. you'd hit the notice of default list. And then we'd say, hey, you don't have to lose your house. Let's do a subprime refinance for you. But that was, we didn't do a lot of those because it really put them in such a bad interest rate and loan scenario. And, uh, you know, in two years, it was going to start jacking up the rate. So we got away from that eventually. But then 
it was like a miracle. Uh, early 2000s, the a lot of the title companies had technology to at least scrape data from the from the counties, and they could print a list for you. Yeah. And so Friday mornings was a mad scramble to go pick up the physical list from the title companies. Okay. <laughs> Everybody trying to get the list first. Yeah. But it was a paper sure. list, so you're still sitting there. And I can remember um, when I first became an investor, I would go hit the Fizbos, and I'd sit, go get by the freaking newspaper with my highlighter. <laughs> And I mean, that's, so I, if I've got an app or whatever it is on my phone, as I'm doing my drive-bys, especially, this is like gold and people don't get how valuable this is. If you're an active real estate investor, you'll waste so much time not having the the right data at your fingertips before you even make those offers, before you hit the streets, even to do your, your, you know, driving for dollars I've heard is a technique, right? Big one, especially with our app, uh, you know, because we show every property as you're driving down the street and yeah. equity and foreclosure and all those things. And then you just, oh, that one's interesting. You press tap and up pops all the information. You can even call the owner. Well, and and, and a lot of times what I'm, I'm looking for is I'm driving around. If I would have had the app, um, especially when we are driving on our lots, if I would have seen a, a business holding a vacant lot, um, that had an out-of-state address. I'm like, oh, I'm going to jump on that. A single person holding an out-of-state uh, out uh, or on our houses when we were driving around. If I already knew a hedge fund owned it, I'm not going to bid on that. You know, <laughs> or you know what I'm saying? So th there, there were so many applications if you had that data. If it was held in trust and it was out-of-state, a couple different things happened. Meaning, uh, it was an inherited property or some kids now own that trust and the mailing address is going to them out of state, but the subject property is in Florida, for example, or Arizona, where the where the, the, the grandparents or whoever, the parents had lived for their retirement. So that would be one that would trigger immediate activity for me if it's an out-of-state rental from somebody that's inherited a property. Well, eventually they might get a nasty eviction. It's that moment in time. I want them to call me first. And, and if I had that information just on a drive-by, it's like literally having x-ray goggles as you're yeah. driving by. <laughs> I like that. X-ray. Yeah. X-ray goggles. Because we can see what's happening with the family immediately. We see uh, trust, mailing address, out of state. And that tells me so much about what's going on with that scenario. It's going to trigger as a high quality, high, high activity lead that I got to jump on faster than the rest of the houses on the street, for example. Yeah. And we're now at that point where it's just, those are just criteria, right? Yeah, I want the yeah. individuals, I want the out-of-state mailing addresses and show me all of those for all of Florida, right? Like it's yep. super easy now and it's unbelievable how hard it was a few years ago. Yeah, one of the, the cool things too is that um, with the data, we had particular investors that would be attracted to us. Some of them would look us up on public record. Um, they'd see how many deals you're doing. Yeah. And, and on the land, we had builders looking us up. So there's Adams Homes, there's Lennar down in the Florida area, there's DR Horton. Um, there, there's, there's quite a few small to mid sized builders as well, but those are some of the big fish down there. And so we had um, DR Horton just reach out to us and they wanted to pick up 80 of our lots that we had acquired through the, the, our, our acquisitions channel. And uh, we made a very reasonable deal with them in bulk um, and, and it worked out well. Part of the reason was, is I also wanted to have an outlet to sell in the future or if there was any possible joint um, venture potential uh, on, on building. 
for example. Yeah, now they won't, DR Horton won't do it. They want all the money. Okay. <laughs> I, I get it. Uh, but we have done joint venture builds with builders where we had the underlying collateral of the lot. It met all their criteria uh, as well. And so, you know, it, it, when you, when you can actually compile inventory that other investors like that starts to attract them to you because they're doing their, their research online as well. And they'll say, Oh, this company owns these 20 pieces. Let's, let's, let's reach out to them. And it, it's even more surprising uh, that DR Horton even hit us up because we bought tax lien certificates on a bunch of their subdivisions uh, up North because they're all over the state. They've got about 30 locations yeah. in the state of Florida and what the developers did after the last recession, which I suspect may happen again here soon, is they stopped paying the taxes and they would wait till the very last month before they were going to get foreclosed out and pay just enough to get foreclosed because they were all juggling cash after the last recession. So they right. owed us $560,000 on a whole subdivision. And we were going to take the whole thing down and sit on it because they had already put the roads in. Yeah. They had nice entrance area. And they wouldn't deal. Their attorneys out of Texas wouldn't deal with us. And we said, okay, click. Mm. And, and they knew we were going to take it to auction. So literally a couple of days before the auction, they sent us the check with interest. And they tried to bargain with us on the interest the attorneys did. And we said, no, click. Because it's all <laughs> state statute. Right. So it's as you, you know, get the right um, types of inventory uh, for that market, it's really key because you need to look at days on market per price range as well. So there'll be certain price ranges that are the hottest spot within that market on price range, right? Might other be other things will sit. Yeah, other things will sit or the high end stuff has longer days on market. But your flippers, your rehabbers, they're going to be looking for stuff that can turn over the fastest. So if you have the right data and you've got this list of investors that you know you can work with, partner with, or maybe even wholesale to, some people wholesale this stuff, uh, it's a great tool to then only focus on the hottest selling, lowest days on market types of inventory and, and sort by bedrooms, baths, okay? And then gauge that, which is it three ones that are selling the hottest? Is it four twos? Uh, and then look at days on market and then even just break that down by subdivision zip code and only focus on buying in those areas because everybody else that's tracking the data as well, the real professionals, they're gonna see you buying in their area as well. And when you get something they want, it's a really nice relationship that you can build. Hey, I want to make sure people appreciate sort of the data aspect of what you're talking about in this area. I've seen the land cost at one point during the peak of the market. Some of these things were going for 90 to 100 grand and then they went under 10,000. That's, that's right. What yeah, on, the, on the lead up to 2007 and a lot of European buyers were coming in paying crazy prices on a quarter acre lot. They're kind of... Well, what, what data were you looking at saying, you know what? This looks like a, a good idea because at the that moment in time, you don't have a lot of competition because people are scared. They're, right. they're licking their wounds from <laughs> going from a hundred grand to ten grand, um, and you're like, "I'll take some of that," and then yeah. uh, just hold the world, world, world together for the next five years, and I'm good with that. <laughs> yeah, it was it was two phases of our operation. Meaning, we when we first went into Fort Myers Cape Coral, we were focusing on short sales and and flipping and and keeping rentals. Okay. And so when we would flip, we would take some of that money, get another rental um, or a portion of those funds and put it towards taxing certificates. But we'd only do it with per se with profit. Mm. So if I'm going to hold land, 
that needs to come from net profit after paying taxes and overhead on a flip or something like that. Then we would take a portion of that and acquire taxing certificates or maybe buy some lots. And we figured if we can have enough to hold this lot for at least five years, we think the market may come back by then, but it was a gamble. Um, and, and, and so we had to kind of juggle the cash flow because you can't just go out even when the market's down and acquire stuff that's not bringing in income and, and expect that you can just sit on it forever. Mm-hmm. So you got to have some cash flow coming in. And with those proceeds, don't go buy a new Porsche. Get with a good tax accountant, pay your taxes, make sure you have enough operating expenses to run your business, but take the surplus and reinvest uh, in a very desperate or low market to control the inventory. Because, I mean, this is a market that's been around since 1960. And so you're often talking to people maybe who have inherited this two generations back and they have no personal connection to it. And it has its ups and it has its downs. So I I was just curious about that. Well, our main focus was... um, the fat, uh, migration patterns. That was my main focus because in certain areas of the country, we were looking for areas where the data showed us that we, if we acquired a property, we could successfully cash flow with at least about a four to 6% cap rate, or we could flip it with a reasonable flip if we made that choice. So we were looking for, for data that would support um, optional markets. And you take a, a town like Northport right now, crunch the numbers, it still works in a town like Northport. Cape Coral starting to squeak up a bit more uh, on that, but um, that's the type I, I, of markets we're just, targeting. Go ahead. I want to focus on that for a second because a lot of people go, oh, four to six cap rate, that's not very good. Right. But what that is, is that's your safety net, yep. right? So, and this is this is something I, I actually think is like really important for like the real estate market at large and like lending and, and all the rest, right? So if you think about loans in 2005 when prices were so high, right? Like in California, you were getting down into one and two cap rate, oh, yeah. right? And so if the lender is taking back that that product and they have to rent it out, you know, they're getting a return that's less than treasuries. And it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me to be making loans into that market really at all. Like right. by 2005, we should have pretty much stopped lending unless you were putting 50% down. Instead, at that point in time, we had the pulse loan where anybody with a pulse could get a loan, right? <laughs> yeah, social security number and, and then, pulse, and maybe it even wasn't your social security number. <laughs> then jump forward to 2009. I know the California number is better, 2009, right? You've got houses that are 15, 20% returns on investment, right? And the banks won't make loans. Yeah. And of course, smart investors like you go, whether I flip it or keep it or whatever, it's fine. And I think a lot of our investors would go a four to 6% return isn't very good, what you just said. But I love that you said, okay, we're going to buy assets that have this return. If something goes wrong and we get stuck with it, it's better than treasuries. You know, it, it, it provides a return on that capital. We're not going to lose money, right? And on the other side, there's a flip potential here where we can make a profit. So now you've got two, you know, you've got a backup strategy and that's how I think you can really, I mean, I think it's just such an important point and it's just, you just glossed over it, but it's such an important point because you gave yourself a, a backup strategy that if something did go wrong, you still have income and you still got an okay return. It's not a great return. It's not the rental portfolio you'd want to build, but it's a great backup. Yeah, I, 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 
Thank you, Sean. I, I mean, there's some great points. I We're overly simplistic anymore, meaning we don't even compare this. If anybody's comparing this to what your stockbroker is telling you or, you know, the latest crypto craze or whatever it is, I get that. I just don't understand those types of investments that don't aren't backed by collateral. And maybe that's maybe that in some circles uh, or some of my golf buddies would say, oh, well, you know, this you're not doing the new sexy thing. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, whether or not you believe we were created uh, or Adam, and he, ever since man has come to be in this modern age, whatever you think that is, and they got booted out of the Garden of Eden and needed a place to keep the rain off their head, that will never go away. I don't care what the assessor says about the value of my property. I don't care. I, I hope they're all zero so I don't have to pay property taxes, right? I don't care what a realtor thinks or an appraiser thinks. I, I, I don't care if the cap rate's zero, honestly, at the end of the day. Now, yeah, we like to make money, but at the end of the day, if the market crashes, I can still rent that property out and, and push along. That was our whole goal when we acquired then was to get a, a hold of the asset. And when we looked at the statistics since roughly 1990, well, and you can look back, there's Case Shiller and all these indexes, and you see these different um, uh time periods where there's been a recession. Real estate has just done this, but it's 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 continued. So if you bought a house, that? <laughs> right? if you bought the same house in 1990 in Cape Coral, you're probably 75,000. Today, that's going to trade in the upper 280 uh, range if it's in pretty good shape. Brand new properties are trading in the uh, 330 range. They're a nice fixed up, three bedroom, two bath, 16 to 1800 square foot property in Cape Coral. That same exact property is going to sell for you know seventy five to one hundred thousand in nineteen ninety. Uh, what's it selling for today? So we we know looking at the history of real estate, um, and and you think back to well the stock market that's that's yeah. way up here. But how come your portfolio of a couple hundred thousand you started with in two thousand eleven hasn't gone up fifteen fold like the stock market has? You're still sitting roughly maybe two eighty. Why? Because you've been traded out so many freaking times because that's how they make their money is by turnover of your money, not the growth of your money in general. Now, I'm over Not only that, in the that. stock market, you don't have a tenant, right? Paying yeah. down the money that you borrowed to buy the uh, asset in, in the meantime, right? So not only yeah. is it the appreciation there, but you've got a tenant and income. And if that income's not coming to you, it's going to paying down the, you know, maybe the debt you used to acquire it. So- you know, it, it, it's really, it is quite different. So I'm not going to yeah. sell you on the, uh, my latest uh, non-fungible <laughs> well, no, uh, token he, idea. And, he, uh, and there are some cool things that could be in real, just the, on the, the moving money. So I'm, I think the technology is amazing. Uh, as an investment vehicle, I don't get it. Here's, here's, what I, here's what we focus on as well is I don't feel sorry um, for anybody that loses money in the stock market because it's 100% out of your control. As much research as you're going to do, you have zero control of what happens to that investment and it can go to zero. You have no recourse to get your money back. Once that money's gone, it's gone. With real estate, you make your money on the buy side. So if you screw up and buy in a bad neighborhood, you have the wrong data and you buy the wrong property, then it's going to be a long struggle, but it's still real estate. Maybe 20 years from now, you get out of, you know, finally make up for it. But you still have some collateral there. And if the market tanks and the value of my property goes from 200000 down to 100000 I haven't 
realize that loss and I can still rent it out and I still have the opportunity for that piece of real estate to bounce back. But at the end of the day, the, the utilitarian use of that asset will never change, meaning keeps the rain off our head. And it's really that data when you go in for the buy, whether it's auctions, whether or not you're doing some marketing campaigns, the integrity of that data is everything because you're making buying decisions off of that data. And it, it, it's been, that's what we do. Yes. Yeah. And until the last <laughs> several years, it's been a, yeah, until the last several years, it's, and, and getting high speed internet, broadband plus speeds and fiber, Google fiber speeds makes a huge difference as well for providers like you uh, and the consumers on our end, the investor end to really get access to everything a lot faster. Faster. Let me ask, let's uh, jump on that. Are you paying attention? You mentioned, you know, uh, data access. And I, I think that's about to change maybe some home values with uh, Starlink and low earth orbit satellites. Are you following that at all and what I, that might do for I rural areas? But I want to follow that. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, a, cool. that's an interesting one. So well, you sorry, got a lot I, you of mentioned it, so I thought maybe there was a segue there. No. And I, 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 I want to talk about, you know, companies like Zillow, what um, we kind of laughed at in 2007, but what do they really have at their fingertips? They're tapping into, the, I mean, the, 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 the division of real estates, the uh, National Association of Realtors just rolled over and just said, oh, here's all our data without thinking about the long-term consequences that companies like Zillow and, and their platforms would just put them out of business. And they're, they're doing it. I don't uh, Red, know that they rolled over. I think the FTC had a lot to say about Well, no, uh, I know, I know. But it feels data. like I I, you know, and I'm a licensed agent as well. It feels like you pay it all the, these these funds and no representation, I I don't think. But it's because they have access and they get they've gathered this user data and data from the counties for years and years and years that they have at their fingertips now. And yeah. and some might say, well, they got lucky or they're so big, but they weren't that big to begin with. The difference is to me, if, if we're kind of comparing what these large outfits have done in the real estate space to us as individuals, the difference was is they went after the data. And now, yeah. they, now they control it. And, and, and realtors have to pay homage to Zillow if they want to get leads, pretty much. You know, and it's mostly buyer's leads because Zillow has all the data and all the leads. For, so, yeah. On the buyer's side, I agree. On the seller's yep. side, they should use us. But no, on the yes, that's side. right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now that's you're right. you're based out of Utah, correct? Yes. So we've mentioned several markets, but none of them Utah. Utah has real estate. The last time I checked. So can yes. we talk a little bit about why not Utah and the data that you're using to select the states that you're in? Well, yeah, no, and and we were again. We look for markets where we can purchase. And potentially, and that's getting harder and harder, obviously, unless you go really rural, uh, or you can potentially rent it out or flip it. Utah was, I would say, 2015 to where that was, it kind of hit that benchmark criteria, that um, inflection point, if you will, to where that became difficult. A lot of it is because in my area, we have two major universities. And so there's a lot of rent control. And coming from California, Sean, you might be able to relate to that. Um, but, you know, that, but so what we did is we focused on uh, commercial. So we've put uh, together a, a good sized commercial portfolio here with warehouse, some retail, uh, and apartment. And that's yeah. been our push in a market like this. You guys uh, have some well. beautiful apartment projects. It's really stunning. 
Yeah, it's 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 been fun. And uh, but SFR is really at the end of the day, single family residential um, is really the core element, I think, of what is long term success and commercial. The the A, um, you know, A class commercial right now, class A commercial is just taking a beating. I know yeah. you're part of a larger company, a lot of stuff going on. So you, I don't yeah. know, know if you were involved. Are you involved in the tiny home project? Uh, yeah. So that's going uh, at all. Can you talk talk to that? Yeah, exactly. So, again, I think um, if you look back at this kind of movement, if you will, um, it really kind of started in the 60s. I know it sounds terrible, but think about this kind of free spirit that's come back around and uh, of, of not Damn. being tied down. And yeah. yeah, I mean, really, it started in the 60s, but it was in a Volkswagen bus or, you know, yeah. or an encampment somewhere or something like now that. Now it's in a $130,000 Sprinter. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. With a Mercedes symbol on the front. And and so, yeah, exactly. but, but the fact that some tiny homes uh, you can relocate uh, is wonderful. Now our project's a little bit different in the fact that they're going to be attached, uh, meaning to the ground so they can get some more traditional type financing. Because if you still have an axle on something, the major lenders aren't, the home lenders aren't going to touch it. Okay. Right. It's personal property. That, that's right. So it'd be considered chattels or like an RV luxury type loan that you're looking at there, which is crazy rates, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, what we did is we got um, a city that would play ball with us uh, in a county with the density level that we would need, uh, how much density we could get per acre. And, and so, you know, what we have is a massive, massive shortage of inventory right now. For, for example, my son, who's uh, just turning 30, he wanted to get into his first townhome, but we did some auto hot sheets, the daily things um, that would give us notification of what townhomes would come. Cause that's the new starter home here because of price raise, but everything was gone within hours. So we went and got our data, our off market data. And we found a guy that owned a townhome and it was a sing, it was a, a individual. So there was just one name on title. Yeah. And I went back and looked at his history and it used to be two names. So I thought either it's a divorce or he's widowed. And it turned out he was widowed and he had his teenage son still living with him. But, but I caught him just at the right time to where he wanted to build for him and his son a house. And he had, and I, I could see his equity position as well. So I could see kind of what the current value was because I knew that market because I could see all the data yep. and I could see what he owed on the property. And he had been in his loan about 19 months. So I just ran a quick amortization schedule. And I thought, oh, he's probably about right here on what he owes approximately. And so because I had that background and that data, reached out to him and I said, hey, are you even thinking about selling? Because uh I, I, we can do it all without an agent. My son's looking for a place. He's pre-qualified and I can just set up the deal for you. And I've got some attorney referrals where you could have them analyze all the prop paperwork to make sure you're comfortable with it and so forth and so on. And we caught him at the right time. Now you might have to send out hundreds of, you know, um, postcards or something to get a hit like that, but we knew we had to go off market and, yeah. and we, and it was just, it, it was like that's, a miracle. A hundred percent what's driving our business right yeah. now. Like it just, uh, there aren't listed properties. If you want to buy something and you want to get a, a reasonable deal and, or you just want something that meets your criteria, period. Yeah. Even if you're willing to overpay, you have to go off market right now. And, and getting the data like property radar has, um, 
is really key for especially beginning investors. And here's why, because realtors aren't going to pay attention to you at first. Okay. They're just not, even if you have a lot of cash, it won't matter because of the migration patterns, because you've got folks from California going out to Arizona with their cash. They'll sell their place in Cali. They'll roll in with 400,000 cash of equity. And that'll get them a nice property in Phoenix, for example. So even if you're a cash investor, doesn't matter now. You need to chase those off-market deals. And because there's a lot of real estate agents because they do not want to list properties where there's tenants in there that aren't paying. Okay. They don't want to list properties that, that uh, are maybe- Yes. Or, or where there's somebody that's in hospice, but all the stuff is still there. The family doesn't have any money to get grandma's stuff out and stored and or get the property fixed up to get retail. And the realtors don't want that inventory, but you as an investor can track it down off market, make arrangements with the family to help all in the contract, of course, and, and find those deals. Because what we do know is there's never a shortage of human suffering that we can help out um, as an investor. I'm not putting down agents, but that's above their kind of mindset or duty in most cases to go. Well, you know, if if they've got enough business without that, why do that work? It's a good good decision (laughs) by the agent not to take on those hard projects because they're going to spend a lot of a lot of time for not any more money. They got two listings for 400,000. This one's got a ton of work. Well, and it sells day one. one. It's the same commission. Yeah. I think to me, if I were a practicing agent, I have my license for my investing, but if I were a practicing agent, I would absolutely use property radar to get my listings, quite frankly, yeah. you know? And then, uh, anyway. Back to the tiny home. How, how big yeah. is that project and how far Gosh, along is- 13 acres. And I think we have eight units approved per acre. Okay. Yeah. So about a hundred units on 13 acres, eight yep. units an acre. Containers. And, uh, so we got to get those shipped over. That's a kind of a prefab container to where the insides basically to an insulation level are done. Quarter inch sheetrock uh, on those, kind of a veneer, if you will. Okay. Um, and yeah, and, and they're stubbed out to a basic design parameter with what in layman's terms, what holes are in the, you know, uh, access and so forth um, for, you know, power coming in and ventilation and all that sort of stuff. So it's kind of this template that we get and then we build out the interior when it gets there. Is that a lease project? A lease project or are you selling those? Um, you know what? We, we thought about rent to own uh, and we've done that, but not with a product this expensive and all at once. So we've done lease to owns on a one-off basis um, you know, depending on the property scenario, but we haven't, and we did a lot of land, uh, you know, lease to own or rent to own on, on building lots, but those were small dollar amounts. You're um, not holding these long-term as rentals. Yeah. You know, I don't think so. And I think that if we put these up, we're still kind of tinkering with our price, but kind of the low end townhomes, uh, for about the same square footage are going for about 275 to 285. Uh, we're thinking about coming in about 230, 235 on these, but we haven't tested that, that marketing yet. For a container home, how, how many square footage? Oh gosh, we're 1200. We've got a 1200 foot model. Well, we've got them down even smaller than that, but it'd probably be under 200,000. We're just going to kind of test and see what kind of marketing bounce back we get on this. So 1200 square feet doesn't really sound like a tiny home, but you're building them using containers. So it's, it's like, 
three 400 foot containers connected? Yes, Is that kind of how it works? there are some, it, it all depends. So we're going to have probably two or three different models. One is a stripped down model for sure. I mean, one is just get in and we're probably going to start at about 160 for that. But honestly, we don't, we might not even do that because we think even at the, the top yeah. model price that we'll just sell them right away. In financing, we're still kind of wondering about, I don't, I don't know if conventional banks are going to touch this yet. They might, but it's, that's, that's, that's an issue as well that we're kind of working out. We've got um, non-conventional kind of A minus paper types that will uh, yeah. put in a big plug for like an RCN capital. They're one of the larger private lenders out there in the space, but taking it down to Chase or Wells right now, I don't know yet. It'd be tough. Yeah. yeah. Utah private lending. The last I checked, you're like 15% rate for hard money out there. You're known for yeah. really hard. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and it is a bit of a challenge because even if they were to get in one of ours, even if they were with um, kind of a A minus paper lender at that five to 7% mark per se, that still cuts down the affordability where they could just go get a townhome or condo. Uh -huh at whatever the par rate of the day is on a 30-year fixed and probably be around the same payment. So that is a bit of a struggle that we're working through right now. We could offer our own financing packages and we're, we're considering that. Uh, we just don't know if we want to have that much hanging out there uh, yeah. at one time, you know, yeah. uh, maybe sell some and maybe finance the back end of the, 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 the portfolio. We'll see. I know we're coming up on a hard stop. Um, yes. yes. Uh, let's talk a little bit about you have a webinar series now. I don't know, is that publicly available to anybody or is that just for your guys's core core it's, folks? It's or for how our does that core work? investors. Yeah, it's it's for our core investors. We don't do anything on YouTube or out in the mainstream. Um, you know, we've just built up a group of investors over the years through various yeah. types of relationships or or you know, um, different investments that people have done with us over the years. And we put that out as just a way to you know, with our clients. And, and if you're an investor yourself doing something, what Aaron and Sean is doing here is absolutely brilliant because it keeps your people engaged with you, whether it's once a month or once a week. Um, I would highly recommend doing it. And we were talking about the gear before we started. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not much, but if all you're doing as a new investor is just going on and talking about deals you're looking at and if you're using now, Sean, here you go. And Sean has not paid me to say this, you guys. If you're using property radar, one of the coolest things in the world is to do screen capture webinars with property radar to your investors because it makes you look like you're a genius that's been doing this for 30 years. <laughs> because you can say, hey, look, we're, we're going to break down the San Dimas area. I'm looking at these three zip codes. Let me right. pull up my, my absentee owner list here. Okay, I've got about 320 potentials here, but I really want to go with stuff that was built after 1970s. I don't want to get into the super older neighborhoods here. And I really want to get above about 1,500 square feet so I know I can get at least three bedrooms, two baths. Because if I'm going to flip that thing, I need that square footage in those beds and baths to get max retail. And I also know that because a lot of our cash investors, that's what they're looking for. They don't want the teeny 800 square foot house in those older neighborhoods. The crime might be a tad higher. So I'm going to push to this type of product for this type of investor. And I know I can move those out fairly quickly or find a partner right away for this type of product. So, so if, people, if that's how you're talking on the webinar with, with property radar, it's just going to attract that money to you, in my opinion. Yeah. Sorry. Um, 
if people want to follow you or learn more about you or learn more about your your company or become, you know, be an investor with you or, or that kind of thing, how, how do they find you? LinkedIn is probably the best way. Yeah. Okay. And I was telling Aaron, I don't, I don't have much of a presence on the, on YouTube or Facebook and it was hard to it was hard to find you, but that's how I stumbled yeah. across your activity in Southwest Florida. I'm like, what are the chances? That is so weird. Yeah, no. I mean, this it, is a challenge. It's a challenge for us as a company, right? Because guys yeah. like you, they're out doing this kind of deals. Like, you're our perfect customers. Like, because most of our customers are the larger investors that do a lot of deals, right? Yes, like, we have yes. a lot of customers that are doing a thousand properties a year, kind of thing. And you know, we certainly attract the newbies too, but we're more geared towards the the higher end folks. You're really hard to find. Like, well, there's no like, list of guys like you. I, I'm well known anywhere. amongst the um, hedge fund community, um, really boring bankers. <laughs> and <laughs> so I've gone to a lot of the conferences like Five Star and, and, and a lot of those and, and Tax Lean um, Conference. And so there's like a, a an investor community that's out there, but these that's a different community. There's then say like the YouTube community where there's guys out there that, you know, look great, smell great. And you think they're worth 50 million bucks and, you know, they're making money off the YouTube revenue. Nothing wrong with that. I think that's wonderful. And do a flip a year or something like that. Um, <laughs> and I'm not saying I'm any better than that. I'm just saying that there's, you know, there's two types of people in the business. Um, there's ones that actually send the wire and ones that don't. And, and the ones that have the ability to send the wire, they're, they're not public Figures they're usually not on Facebook and, and they're, yeah, I yeah. get you. And they, they're on yeah. super boring sites like LinkedIn and so forth. But what's okay, really cool. So it's Sean Walker at LinkedIn yeah. in Utah. So you can find the right Sean Walker because I'm sure there's more than one. Yeah, I will yeah. post the link on our show notes to the post right Sean Walker. Thanks. <laughs> and Sean, I really appreciate you, uh, Thanks, you guys. joining us. And uh, yeah. And, That's and, a privilege. Uh, and I, I, you know, I love your product. And when you sat down to do that demo, I wish I would have had that 12 years ago. Would have made all the difference in the world. <laughs> Don't you miss microfish? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we did. Yeah. <laughs> so. I, yeah. I, I actually think like there should be a prerequisite before anybody uses our product that they go to the county and pull a document on microfish, mm -hmm. right? And then go to the clerk and ask for a copy of it and pay the $35 for the copy of that one document, right? Or spend the 20 minutes writing out all the fields from it. Like that should That's be right. a prerequisite to the people like public records are free. <laughs> I'm like, or yes, ordering a of. property card from <laughs> Kentucky. We bought, here's the last thing I'll give you why this is such a great product. We ordered, uh, we bought a small taxing portfolio in Kentucky and some of the counties there aren't even on microfish. And this would have been about 2012. Maybe they've upgraded now, but they have index cards in file folders. And, and so they're four by six and they call it a property card. And for $3 and 50 cents, you can order the property card. Now, not in the main counties like Lexington, some of the bigger towns, but in the very rural areas where we had some of these taxing certificates, we wanted to get information about the property, uh, especially when we go to foreclose on it. And we were, yeah. had to order these and then wait a couple of weeks and you get your property card. And and so, yeah, things have come a long way since then. Crazy, crazy business. People yep. don't have no idea what it is that goes into it. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Sean. Really appreciate having you. Thanks, thank you, guys. Very. Been a privilege to be here.
Thank you for listening to the Data-Driven Real Estate Podcast. You can find show notes and links to some of the resources mentioned in the show at datadrivenrealestate.com. Click that Join the Community and you'll be forwarded to the Property Radar community where you can ask questions about the current show and even see upcoming guests and ask questions there. We'd love to engage with you in the community, so check it out. Please don't forget to like, favorite, subscribe, and share on your favorite platform where you're listening to the show. It helps us out a great deal. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.